breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you for joining me again. Hope you all been doing well. Well, we had a, another election pass us by in the past uh, week and uh, a lot of changes going on. Is it for the good? Is it for the better? Is it for the worse? I'll leave the politics to you personally, but I think there's some shifts in areas that relate to issues that I cover on this program a lot, which is identity politics, ideologies of freedom, liberty, Americanism, immigration issues, and what the far left is trying to do. And we will talk about that shortly. We'll get to all that. Also hidden in the uh, infrastructure bill this week was, believe it or not, and I don't know if it was taken out ultimately or not, but uh, we'll talk about it, was a Easter egg for the Muslim Brotherhood. Yes, and not only the Muslim Brotherhood in America, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. We'll talk about that. And what else? Dictators' cousins are flourishing driving Lamborghinis in uh, California thanks to a uh, unfiltered immigration process from the Biden administration. Lots, lots to review. But first, let's, let's look at what was hidden in the infrastructure bill. But actually, I'm going to start with Senator Cruz's reintroduction of the Muslim Brotherhood Terrorist Designation Act. And as he said with many co-sponsors, he noted that uh, he once again introduces the Muslim Brotherhood Terrorist Designation Act along with Representative Diaz-Balart with the companion version introduced in the Senate and the House. The Muslim Brotherhood continues to instigate acts of terrorism and supports other terrorist organizations responsible for horrific acts of violence around the world. Designating it as a foreign terrorist organization would impose tough sanctions that would restrict its ability to raise revenue, used to cause harm, and spread hate-filled ideology around the world. Now, this has been introduced before. They reintroduced it. Co-sponsors include Senator Jim Inhofe, Senator Ron Johnson, House bill sponsored by Kay Granger, Chuck Fleischman, Bill Johnson, Ohio, Tom Massey, Adam Kinsinger, Scott DeJarlis, Tennessee, Guy Reskinschaller, and others. So this is, obviously, it's a, a mostly Republican bill. We'll see if any Democrats step up to the plate. But even more interesting, I think, is this is obviously being done in response to not only reintroducing it year after year until it finally might take hold if rational minds come to the table, But this past week, this news was released by little small detailed policy experts that looked in. And it's not only from America. A a Twitter handle on Turkish affairs noted, Senator Ted Cruz criticizes the Biden administration's blackmailing of Egypt by placing a secret item in the defense budget to stop aid to Egypt in the event that it does not release 
brotherhood leaders imprisoned in Egypt, including Salah Sultan, his son Yusuf al-Qardawi, and her husband. As long as the sons of Qardawi are in it, the handle says, I do not need to tell you that the Qatari regime is behind this. Senator Cruz goes to the House and talks about the clause in it that notes in the bill in making the certification required by subsection 3A, the Secretary of State shall consider the cases of Ullah al-Qardawi, Hossam Khalif, Saleh Sultan, Abdurrahman Tariq, and Muhammad al-Baqir. The committee urges that humane treatment and fair trials be afforded these and other prisoners in Egypt and ends up tying tying the funding of Egypt to the release of Brotherhood operatives and terrorists. Senator Cruz at the floor of the Senate then walked through what many of these people that our bill, our American bill, defense budget, that does delineate criteria for aid, etc. What that bill missed when it came to the ideology of the blood libel of many of those who have been talked about needing to be freed and otherwise. And the theme for me, you can get to the details if you want to look it up. It'll talk about how they added that and we'll follow exactly if Senator Cruz was able to have that removed or not. But at the end of the day, when you wonder why Islamist regimes like Turkey, Qatar, Iran, and otherwise, the Taliban, how they, why would they, you know, those, the naysayers say, well, why would they dump money into lobbying the West? That doesn't make any sense. There's no benefit. Well, look, not only is there lobbying paying benefit, but this was certainly inserted, certainly inserted by a few well-placed Islamist operatives inside the Biden administration. Whether it's State Department triggering a contact through the, a member of Congress, whether it's uh, within the White House uh, uh, liaison office, again, we talked about on it here, the, the Islamist sympathizing, Hamas sympathizing liaison, uh, uh, Rima, uh, Doden, I think was her name, the liaison with the White House that's working with Capitol Hill, any of all of the above could be in play. And then you think back a few months ago when the Afghanistan debacle showed that it was not only run by an incompetent State Department, but ultimately handed Afghanistan over to the Taliban. So you look, as many have said, when you want to figure out why foreign policy debacles happen, always look at who benefits by the outcome. The Taliban benefited by the outcome in Afghanistan. Qatar benefited. The Qardawis, the Islamist, highest of the highest on Al Jazeera and the Muslim Brotherhood leaders, if you will, spiritual leaders, intellectual leaders, benefited. Turkey's Islamists benefited. And this Easter egg in the Defense Authorization Act benefits the Muslim Brotherhood, the hardcore 
Muslim brother. No longer is it about, oh, they're moderate, they're not terrorists, they want to work with democracy. They are openly triggering benefits for known radical ideologues and terrorists through our Congress and through our policies. And, and wait, I have to tell you, little doubt that you may end up finding either friends of Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib or them themselves with their fingerprints over why this was included with a hat tip to the Muslim Brotherhood and radical ideologues in Egypt and those imprisoned. Now, listen, I'm not saying that al-Sisi's regime, it's not a democracy, it's a regime, is anything to support or that its enemies are anything to forget. There are probably, and I know of the fact, that there are many liberals, Egyptian Democrats, whether they be Muslim, Coptic Christians, or otherwise, that are fighting for freedom against a regime that is a military dictatorship in Egypt. But that does not make the Muslim Brotherhood a benign, pro-Western, pro-democracy, pro-woman, pro-minority organization. It's still a terrorist organization. It should still be labeled as such. No different than ISIS might have a common enemy with many of those who are liberal trying to seek reform in Syria against the Assad fascists. But that does not make ISIS anything but what it is about a barbaric, theocratic, evil organization. Let's jump to Virginia politics. And again, I don't uh, particularly like having this program be a political program. Obviously, we dabble in issues that cross a lot of the fences of, of politics here. But the results in the Virginia elections this week have so many lessons. So many. And you look back over the last few months. You look back and compare the coverage that the issue on black uh, um, life in America, on the Black Lives Matter movement, on critical race theory, whether it was on the left or right, but especially on the left and all the uh, apologetics that came with it. Fine, I've, we, we've talked about that many times, and yes, there's a lot of work for us to do in America. But then you have a lieutenant governor race that was being ignored. They didn't know what to say about the candidate Winsome Earl Sears, a 57-year-old politician, a veteran of the U.S. Marines, businesswoman, and a Republican. And she came out a winner, along with now Governor-elect Youngkin. And even in the wake of their win, the media had the gall to talk about white supremacy winning and racism winning and the divisions growing. And yet, of the few candidates that ran this last cycle, not too many elections this cycle, but of the few candidates that ran last Tuesday... 
a hero, an African-American hero that's an immigrant, pro-business, that if you look at her victory speech, it is 180 degrees diametrically opposed to anything that Ilhan Omar would have said. Anything. She talked about how much she loved this country, how much she was a patriot, how much she did not have any ill will towards this nation and how much she wanted to serve the Ilhan Omars of the world in their victory speeches talk about how they're going to get reparations. Talk about how they're going to correct the hateful country that is supposedly their country that they love. They look at it from a position of weakness, from a position of inferiority, rather than from a position of equality. It's about, about what others can do to apologize to them rather than what they can do for a country that they love. One week, Ilhan Omar is trying to shred the police department and her predecessors, and the next week she's crying from the podium and from the mic about why the police have abandoned their jobs and they're not working hard enough to keep her safe. Which is it? These folks don't care about facts. They don't really care about racism. They use it as a political bludgeon over their enemies. Because if it really was about racism, Winsome Sears, there's nothing even remotely self-hating about anything she says, so they don't cover her. They don't cover her. Born in Jamaica, she's not only an African-American, she is an immigrant that doesn't give the traditional immigrant story that the left wants you to swallow. She served as an electrician in the U.S. Marines. She served as a patriot and is a patriot. She got her B.A. from Tidewater Community College in English with a minor from ODU, Old Dominion. It's amazing. She ran a homeless shelter before running for public office. She upset a 20-year Democratic incumbent, Billy Robinson, back in 2001 after 9-11 while running for the 90th district seat in Virginia House of Delegates. She was the first Jamaican female Republican and first female veteran and first naturalized citizen to serve in the House of Delegates in Virginia. And she served as vice president of Virginia Board of Education. Boy, you know, I look at the Virginia elections and I think one of the most positive things that happened is that Atif Carney, the Secretary of Education for Virginia, the Islamist, one of the highest positioned public officials in the Islamist movement, who declared, and many of you may have seen her on, on um, media recently, as she's been very involved in education and parents' rights in Northern Virginia, Ezra Nomani, but we also know her well in our Muslim reform movement where she's been working with us for years as she runs the Daniel Pearl Project and has been very involved in women's rights, bodily autonomy, equality, and Islamic reform. Her narrative didn't fit either. CNN tried to have her on once, but she so much put them in their place that I haven't seen her on since again. 
So it's amazing that the left, the far left, is not about actually having debates about truly discussing examples of racism and actually pushing forth narratives left or right that break down the walls of racism, that break down the walls of perceptions of inequality, that begin to allow individuals to make the narratives for themselves rather than the elite to push and ram down what they believe the narrative should be. And at the end of the day, in this program, Reform This, at the end of the day, the message is clear that it is, the message is so clear. We in the Muslim reform movement, and many of us have been fighting the Islamists and the elitists, tell us we are not clerics, we're not Sharia experts, we don't have the right to have an opinion about Muslim law, Islamic law, Quranic interpretations, the place of women in family courts, on and on. No, it's not our role to do that. And the left, you see now in the racial divide that's happening, the identity politics that's being pushed, they're pushing this mantra similarly, that really it's not to them about the core issue, like in our issue, it's not about really what is morally right or honorable in, in Islam and, and righteousness and ethical. It's not about the, re, the truth and critical thinking. It's about suppressing dissent. It's about controlling, letting the establishment dominate who is and what is, Muslim, is not Muslim and what is Muslim. They, they, they create and divert dissent into apostasy. Same thing with the left, and we see this in this election and the media discussion in the last year or two on a lot of the, the, the racial divide and identity politics. You, how do you disagree with someone when they identify the issue as simply related to skin color? The loss that the left suffered, the Democrats suffered in this election last week was not about ideas, the economy, the pandemic, the, the printing of money from month to month, the joblessness that has not been fixed because of for some reason, millions have disappeared from the employee roles in America. It's not about fixing that to them. It's about controlling a sense of fear that the other side will destroy you and they hate you. So thus, even when an African-American hero, a woman who in one human being epitomizes many of the ideas that Ilhan Omar does not want you to believe, that immigrants can be successful, that minorities can be successful, that minorities can be successful without doing so on the back of entitlement of reparations for things that happened 150 years ago. No, that's not worth, that's not newsworthy. And I think it's so relevant to what we fight within the Muslim community because ultimately identity politics has many different uh, permutations that they will exploit in order to push their agenda. Because at the end of the day, most of these issues are not about. It's about control. 
and the highest class, the elitists, control the middle and the lower class by telling them that the other side hates them, by controlling their emotions and making them ignore the empty shelves and the economic distress and making them ignore the fact that all they really want is to be paid fairly for a hard day's work in order to go back to work. But that's not what's on their agenda for the elitists to continue to control and divide. Now let's move on quick. If I, I found another metaphor in the news, a little nugget that nobody, you know, probably or very few cared much about, but I think to many Americans of Syrian descent with family in Syria, this is a metaphor that is worth paying attention to when it comes to open borders in America. Sometimes, sometimes odd cases don't set the rule or don't define the rule, or sometimes they do define the rule, and in this one, I believe they do. And thanks to the reporting of Adam Credo at the Washington Free Beacon, we see that driving a Ferrari in L.A., is Ali Makhlouf, the son of U.S.-sanctioned Syrian business tycoon Rami Makhlouf, and Esed's cousin. He was seen in Los Angeles earlier in October driving a $300,000 Ferrari. According to Adam, his parents raised questions about how he was able to obtain a U.S. visa given his father's presence on the U.S. sanctions list in close relationship with Assad, who is also heavily sanctioned for the mass killing of Syrian citizens in the nation's 10-year-old civil war. And isn't it amazing? I mean, this guy's driving around with with uh, a, a, a model in his uh, um, passenger seat, top off the car, flaunting his wealth. His wealth obtained through the blood of Syrians, through the genocide of Syrians with 700,000 dead over 10 to 11 million displaced out of a 22 million population. And Rami Makhlouf, now some may say, oh, they're at odds now with the Assad regime. The Makhloufs, I'll remind you, uh, control different aspects of the mafia economy in Syria, the, of the Esadists, but basically the cellular uh, phones operations uh, were companies that uh, the Makhloufs operated through and also including through a lot of Lebanon. Republican lawmakers who spoke to the Free Beacon said Makhlouf's trip to the U.S. signals a softening in the U.S. stance toward Assad, which has hitherto consisted of sanctions on his regime and efforts to isolate the embattled dictator. Turns out Makhlouf obtained a U.S. visa around the time the Biden administration began considering a push to unwind sanctions on Assad in order to facilitate an energy deal with Hezbollah-controlled Lebanon. So it's not just the nuclear deal of the Obama administration that they want to reinvigor and thus appease genocidal dictators like Assad because they're in the pocket of the Iranians. But now there was an energy deal in Lebanon with Hezbollah, which is also a terrorist operation for the Iranian regime. But this one's in Lebanon. And the Makhlouf's have deep connections to Lebanon, as I intimated. Republican foreign policy leaders are pressing the Biden administration for information and say they will not allow the United States to normalize relations with Assad as he commits mass human rights abuses. 
It's disgusting to see him driving around L.A. And I guarantee you, regardless of ideology, many of the Syrian Americans that actually put two and two together to see that supposedly their guy, that they voted against the Islamophobic Trump, and I say that with sarcasm, is actually actually doing things to, to relieve punishments that the American government put on folks committing genocide against Muslims, more so than the previous administration. Regardless of what President Trump may have said here and there about Assad that wasn't strong enough or articulated well, there were no relief of sanctions on the Assad regime. There was, there was actually a maximum pressure campaign against Iran. And now that's all being unwound. And every, every battlefront. Representative Joe Wilson from South Carolina, a member of the House Armed Service Committee, told the Free Beacon, this egregious display underscores the need to enforce U.S. sanctions and expand them to include the extended family members of the Assad regime. Congress has a right to know how this man got into the United States. And I would actually add how this human excrement got into the United States because the Makhloufs, the Assads, and so many of these other beyond mafia-type families in Syria that are running the military, that are working with terror operations, that are cancers, are just sort of no longer have to worry about any target. It's amazing. And yet, what about China? I say what about China because I want to end today talking about what is our policy about the Uyghurs? Again, we saw the previous administration begin to, not only when it came to getting answers about the pandemic and what happened in Wuhan and, and Fauci's jiu-jitsu in Congress about the reality of what we might have been funding there, how about the economic destruction that that country is continuing to, even though there are companies that exist that share their survival with the West, in China, the reality is, is the methods used for those companies to succeed are those that are just unconscionable and disgusting to the American taxpayer. And yet we went all in with supporting the Chinese economy. You see the climate czar, Kerry, they're applying all of these unbelievable restrictions to the West, and yet the biggest, most egregious criminal country on climate is China, and they're not even at the table. And then you look at the Uyghurs, a Muslim minority population of 15 million or so that is being put in camps of 2 to 3 million with forcible, forcible uh, uh, crimes against humanity being done against them until they reject their faith, until they eat pork, until they uh, rip up their own scripture and declare allegiance to the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party. Ennis Cantor, Boston Celtic pro player, has been doing some uh, fascinating work in uh, exposing Nike and exposing the NBA. And I think it's interesting that finally, we have many people that were criticizing the NBA. You had the idiocy of 
King James, LeBron James, uh, trying to say that Cantor shouldn't get into politics and this is just not about basketball. While he makes millions off of what's happening in China, you saw Hollywood with John Cena, Cena, I mean, I'm sorry, talking about apologizing to the Chinese people because he was critical of their position on Taiwan, the governmental positions on Taiwan, because he even recognized Taiwan as a country. All of these celebrities, and there's Ennis Cantor by himself, trying to call attention to the genocide against the Uyghurs and their need for religious freedom and religious identity, national identity. So, yet, it's not getting that much traction. Again, it doesn't fit the narrative. A Turkish-American Muslim, I don't know if he's American, but he can't go back to Turkey. He's a dissident from Turkey. The Erdogan regime finds those in the, in the Gulen movement to be traitors, dissidents, beyond dissidents. And they're suppressing their movement. Now, you might have, uh, regardless of what you believe, you might have difficulties with the Gulen movement, its secrecy, its uh, attachment to uh, various charter schools and other things that seem to be more opaque than they are transparent. But at the end of the day, there are so many divisions in our religious communities. We should defend their right to be free to practice their faith and their interpretations of Islam. And Ennis, is, uh, Mr. Cantor, has never talked about those minor divisions. He has basically said it as a Muslim, a self-identified Muslim, and we should respect that. And those who don't are simply trying to declare him a heretic or declare him a apostate. So to that end, he should be supported supported in his endeavor to bring attention in his position and at at lot significant risk to his family in Turkey, to his family. Turkey has been all in with supporting the Chinese regime. Again, what are they doing in NATO? But we'll continue to follow the Cantor story. I think that uh, he is a breath of fresh air and uh, eventually... If enough celebrities, if enough people of influence pay attention, we will see some change. All right. It's been great talking to you. We covered a lot of territory today. And uh, stay connected with us on Twitter at Reform This Radio and also at Dr. Zudi Jasser. And also uh, go to our website at aifdemocracy.org to see what our nonprofit is doing and the latest work that we have online. God bless you all. Stay safe and healthy. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.